I am acting as chairman of this open meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. And it's customary for each of us, I will first introduce myself. My name is Lucille Ruth. I am a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. And through following its program, it has not been necessary for me to take a drink of alcohol for 26 days and 20 months. We have assembled here as alcoholics and non-alcoholics, friends, relatives, and loved ones, for the purpose of acquainting ourselves more thoroughly with the program of AA. As alcoholics, we believe the 12-point program of Alcoholics Anonymous is the only way for us to maintain sobriety and secure for ourselves a contented and useful life. We are conscious of the fact that we are suffering from a serious disease which in no way has a moral or legal aspect, a disease that medicine alone has been unable to cope with successfully, a disease that is devastating and, if allowed to continue, means death or loss of sanity. It is obvious that we can secure much assistance in our AA educational program if our families and friends make a sincere effort to understand the true meaning and value of the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. And we earnestly hope that you non-alcoholics will avail yourselves of every opportunity to become familiar with all its aspects. AA is truly a new design for living. An open mind, tolerance, and sincerity of purpose are necessary in the study program. It would be wise if we bore in mind at all times that a person who seems unable to stop drinking, who cannot do so whether he wishes to or not, or a person whose behavior as a result of drinking is such as to interfere with his normal and important activities of life is considered an alcoholic. Absolute abstinence, the second meaning of Alcoholics Anonymous, is the AA answer. For we realize that we no longer have the privilege of decision concerning the question to drink or not to drink. We approach our problem with an understanding that in ourselves we cannot handle our disease, but must be willing to seek the assistance of a power greater than ourselves, and to do all we can to recognize the fact that, with the removal of many defects of character and personality, we can more nearly approach a full understanding of the symptoms which have been instrumental in creating our alcoholic problem. This approach and understanding is made possible through the AA program, and our ultimate goal is a full and contented life without alcohol. We will now have a minute of silent prayer and meditation. Amen. In conducting the meeting tonight, I want to remind you again that whatever is said in this meeting, either by me or any other speaker, expresses our own individual opinions as of tonight. We do not speak for AA as a whole, and you are free to agree or disagree as you see fit with any statement which is not in accord with the AA book. I would first like to welcome all of the visitors. It makes me real happy to see this room full of people. It's both a privilege and a pleasure to be your chairman of this ninth anniversary tonight. I'm too young in AA to tell you anything about it nine years ago. However, in 1947, I did have a drinking problem. And it was about this time that I did read the big book rather hurriedly. I suppose to acquaint myself with what an alcoholic was. And after I had done this, I spent the next seven years trying to prove to myself that I was not an alcoholic. But tonight I admit to myself and to you and to God that I am an alcoholic. I believe this with all my heart and mind, and I know that I shall have peace only as long as I continue believing this and trying to live the AA program. How I became an alcoholic is of no consequence now. What made me an alcoholic is of no interest, and how it affected my life is probably not important to anyone except myself. I am convinced from my own experiences that my reaction to alcohol is so abnormal 
that any indulgence for me constitutes a totally undesirable and impossible way of life. I understand that once I pass from normal to abnormal drinking, I can never learn to control drinking again. I have come to understand that I have been trying all of my life to substitute alcoholic fantasy for real achievement. My efforts have been hopeless and absurd. I recognize that giving up alcohol is my own personal problem, which primarily concerns myself alone. I am convinced that at all times and under all conditions, alcohol produces for me not happiness, but unhappiness. I have come to understand that the motive behind my drinking has been some form of self-expression, some desire to gratify an immature craving for attention or to escape from unpleasant reality in order to get rid of disagreeable states of mind. I understand that besides abstinence, my real goal is a contented, efficient life. And tonight, rather than think of myself as a reformed drunk, I should like to think of myself as an informed alcoholic. Without my sobriety, I know that I would again revert back to being a practicing drunk. The knowledge that I have gained permits me to have a choice. I can be a drunk or I can be a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. And tonight there is no question in my mind which I want to be. In my opinion, tonight we have two of the better speakers in AA on our program. And I want to tell both of them, before we start, to take all of the time that you want. The meeting can go on as long as necessary. And without saying anything further, I'd like to introduce Al from Dallas. You know, when you come up with that statement, we can have all the time that we want. That's a pretty, pretty big order. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen of this noble fellowship called Alcoholics Anonymous. My name is Al, and I am a recovered patient of this cherished institution. And by trying the best of my emotional and mental qualifications and limitations to follow the 12 suggested steps of this beautiful program to physical recovery and to spiritual growth, and with a great deal of help from people like you, and by the grace of Almighty God, I haven't had a drink of alcoholic beverage in seven hours, twelve days, and eleven years. Now, I only speak of the length of my sobriety, not the quality. I know that I should have done better and could have done better. My presence here tonight is a pleasant privilege to help you to celebrate your ninth birthday in AA. I want you to understand that I hold no special position of leadership in this beautiful fellowship on account of the length of my sobriety or my experience. I am simply a person who has recovered from a very serious illness. I make no claim whatever to moral merit or religion, except the religion of humanity, the brotherhood of man that is set forth in this program. I am simply a member of Alcoholics Anonymous, feeling that I can shake hands and say brother or sister, to the vilest drunken man or woman that ever lived. If anything should come to you of moral admonition through what I say tonight, it comes not from a sense of moral superiority, but it comes from the depths of my heart and my experience. Alcohol in my little private hall of fame, Alcoholic Anonymous occupies a pedestal that no other institution has ever shared. And I hope and pray to Almighty God that he will keep my pride within due bounds. He alone 
knows of my sincere inclinations. I want it distinctly understood that what I have to say here tonight with regard to AA or the higher power or anything else is simply my limited interpretation of an understanding, an understanding of a very large subject from a layman's standpoint. Based largely upon my personal experience rather than an exhaustive study. In fact, all I know about this important subject has been acquired during the last few years. As far as the high power in religion is concerned, while I was born and reared in a Christian home, as a young man I was baptized and joined the church without believing in God. While all my life I have considered myself more or less a kind of a skim milk Christian, but only in the last 11 years have I come to realize what is commonly known as a spiritual experience. It is only during the last few years that I have acquired a practical and workable conception of a higher power or that God has meant anything in my life as a vital, sustaining influence. I am an alcoholic, and about 12 years ago, my good family, my good doctor, including myself, decided that I was going to die a drunkard. I was very nearly ready to give up. In fact, I had given up. I, of course, the thought of turning to God in my dire necessity but I found that my childhood conception of God and religion was inadequate to fit my needs every member of Alcoholics Anonymous in this room tonight has a spiritual side to his or her life Otherwise, we wouldn't be here. While my conception of God may be different from yours, God remains the same. It is only that our understanding of God is different. What I'm trying to point out is uh, that religion is not spirituality. Religion is but a, an expression of spirituality. And we need some vehicle to bring us to or in contact with a higher power. That vehicle, in my case, is Alcoholics Anonymous. I'd like to, at this time, take us back, each and every alcoholic in this room, and have you to remember what life was like during those dark days. Broken hearts and broken homes, rifts between relatives, <coughs> nagging of bitter tongues, squabbles over money and morals, are good women growing old before their time, our children turning away in disillusionment from the trickery of a once trusted parent, a drinking parent scourged by the selfishness of his alcoholic nature, only torn lives, only, only torn conscience and blasted lives lie along the pathway of the drinking alcoholic. Not one of us has escaped at least the shadow of deep misery. Pity those many thousands of lives that have been spoiled and ruined by the relentless selfishness of the drinking alcoholic whose one main ambition was to draw a loved one down to his rotten standard of behavior. There's one thing that I certainly do not want to forget tonight, and that is to pay tribute to the fine women that are here in this audience the wives of the alcoholics that have continued to hold on 
that did continue to hold on to their loved one with some spark of faith. I think that you're the greatest women on God under God's green earth. And I don't know of anyone who is better qualified to make that statement than I. Because I had a good little woman that I made suffer for 17 long years. Thank God she's here with me tonight. And had not been for her, I wouldn't be here talking to you folks. I wouldn't be here at all. Because it is through her influence that I found this beautiful program called Alcoholics Anonymous. Never shall I forget the afternoon when I was walking the floor to my apartment, shaking from head to foot, trying to make a decision of whether to jump from a seven-story window or not. I finally made that decision, and after I made preparations and went over to my walk across the room to dive through that window, I glanced down on my night table, and there was the story of the drunkard, a feature story that appeared in the Dallas Morning News possibly two weeks before by a great writer, Kenneth Foree, and that story was the story of Esther, the fine woman that brought Alcoholic Anonymous to Dallas, Texas, the history of her life as a drunkard. A thought came to me, the last thing I can do for a fine woman that I have made suffer would be to read this. I'd been destroying it when I'd find it on my desk or on my night table or in the wastebasket. When I picked it up to read it, I was shaking so bad I couldn't hold it and I placed it on the side of my bed and read that story. And in that story, I found the history of my own life because the same thing had happened to me that was happening to her, that had happened to her. There was a telephone number to call. I immediately called that number. In ten minutes, two men walked into my room. I was lying down on my bed, shaking from head to foot, and one of them said to me, I remember it like it happened yesterday. He said, you're pretty sick, aren't you? I said, no, I'm just a no-good drunkard. He said, you're not, said, you're an alcoholic and you're a sick person. Where have you got your whiskey head? I said, between the mattress and the springs. I said, get the bottle out here and have yourself and let me pour you a big drink. I said, I didn't invite you gentlemen down here to show me how to drink. I know how to do that. If I take a drink, I'll get drunk. He said, we know, but says, you need a drink bad. Because he said, we want to talk to you. And said, you're shaking so bad we think you're waving at us. I got that bottle out and they did pour me a slug. I drank it. And look, one of the old boys sitting on a twin bed just across from me, wiped in perspiration from his forehead. His face was red and he was shaking like I was. And I said, you better let me pour you a drink. I said, you need one as bad as I do. He said, I mean, need one a damn sight worse. But said, I, I, I can't take one. Said, I haven't had one for two months. But said, I was in a lot worse shape than you are whenever they took it away from me. So I was in an insane asylum for life. My good wife got the book of alcoholic anonymous into me, and here I am. And I haven't had a drink in almost two months. That old boy introduced me last night to birthday party up in Dallas. And I made the statement then, I'll make it again, that he come putting there spoiling the whole deal. <laughs> Sitting there shaking like he was, his red face and perspiring. I just made up my mind right then, well, this is not for me, because I wouldn't suffer too much for nobody and be like he is. They didn't tell me a lot of things to do. They did tell me to live 24 hours at a time. They told me to put first things first. Now, they first told me to live 24 hours at a time and then to take it easy, something I've never learned to do. Of course, this last operation I've had has kind of slowed me up a little. But they told me to put first things first, and the first thing in my life was my alcoholic problem. That they come ahead of my fine wife and my fine son and my business. That if I'd keep that first in life, I would have all three. 
how true that has been because I've kept it first. Sometimes the little woman possibly doesn't understand even yet after 11, over 11 years why I must do the things that I'm doing. But I think that you and I are the only people that know that. We know what we've got to do to stay sober. And I'd do anything in the world to keep from taking that first drink. And I do, do know that it works the way I've been working it. Because it's meant everything in the world to me. I have ample of everything. I have my wife and my son. I have my business. And it's been my extreme pleasure and privilege to meet fine A's like you all over the country. I've shared in their joys. I've shared in their sorrows. And I've been privileged to speak to many groups. And from this experience, I have learned a great lesson that I shall cherish the longest day that I live. Now, Burton asked me to give you a little history of my boyhood experience. As I told you, I was raised in a Christian family, an old country boy. Ran away from home when I was about 16 years old. Got as far as seventh grade in the country school. I decided I didn't want to make a farmer out of myself. So I went from Decatur, Texas, down to Fort Worth. I went looking for a job, and I finally found me a job with the Chicago Crayon Company. That's an enlarged picture outfit way back on about 40-some years ago. This old boy hired a cousin and myself, which was about my age, and he put us on a train, and I didn't have enough money to pay my fare all the way to Corner, Texas. So back in those days, they traveled on scrip. These traveling men had this yards of scrip, you know, that they paid their tickets with, and and the conductor tell what he wanted, and he took piece that strip in the guy's hat, you know, and I spotted him. So this wonderful man that I was working for told me just how to do it. He said, buy your ticket to Saginaw eight miles out. And when the conductor goes through and when he goes back, you just come by here not paying attention to nobody and reach up and get that little ticket out of my hat and stick it in your hat. And then you and your cousin go way at the back end of the car back and sit down. I never thought I'd done anything wrong. I ought to know better, but I didn't think so. So I worked it just that way. And we got along fine. We got in about 15 miles a corner. But our aunt was so glad to get rid of us we was living on down there that she'd fix us up a lunch so we decided we'd eat something. So we got together and got to eating. And that old conductor, old George Clark, he finally come by and he said, Bud said, where'd you get that ticket? Well, of course, I guess the expression of my face was a dead giveaway. But anyhow, he caught me. I didn't... I, I, I just made out like I stole it. I didn't want to get the bad of my new boss, you know. Well, that old man, like, scared me to death. He had me just bowling like a cave. But he took me on in the corner. But, you know, that little 15-mile ride, or that ride up there cost me an awful lot for it all over. Because many years later... I was a dining car steward on the Colorado and Southern Railroad. And old Uncle George was still the conductor. And boy, many free meals I bought for that old boy, I'll tell you. And he told that on me many times. Every time he'd catch a cow around, he'd call me over and tell the story about me going to sell seven large pictures. We got to the corner, and the old boy put us in a two-horse buggy the next morning and drove us out five miles north of town. The little city of Acme. Anybody you know that country up there? Now, you mind, I'm talking about 40 years ago. He took me out of the buggy first, and he said, I'm going over to this house and show you how to sell these here pictures. And that booger's pretty smart. He sold that old mama a picture of her grandma, see? See, we had, a, had three different kinds. Pastel, ink, and crayon. That's in a roll, you know, good-looking pictures, you know, you unrolled that business and you showed it to these old gals and they picked out the one they wanted. 
So after we walked out of this house, after just a few minutes, he'd sold her a picture, and he said, now, you've already made yourself a dollar and a half. Of course, you folks wouldn't be old enough to know how much that was back in those days, but that was a little fortune within itself. So he said, tell you what I want you to do, son. I said, I want you to work now northeast until Wednesday night. Then I want you to work back in to be Saturday night. Of course, I'm going to give you boys a little banquet there at the hotel. I looked at him. I said, you mean walk? He said, well, I certainly walk. So I took out. And I go to Amarillo quite often. Every time I hit that town of corner, or that town of Acme, I begin to look over those curves. Well, I won't tell you right now that I bet you I walked 200 miles that week. And I didn't find but three places where anybody lived. So they just didn't nobody live in that country up there then. And those that did live in the country, the only way you could find them was watch where the smoke was coming. They'd get on a high place and watch for the smoke coming out of the ground because they all lived in dugouts, you know, lived under the ground. Several of those nights I climbed a mesquite tree and tied myself in my belt because I was scared the steers would get me or the coyotes. The booger would sure howl up there and had me scared to death. But I put up for that, and I finally made it back into corner, and I walked five miles from my own. The marker was a cement plant up there. When I got back to that Acme, within it's five miles in town, there's an awful storm coming. And that was one thing that I sure was scared. That was a storm. Because back in that old home place of mine, we had a cellar right out in the backyard. And every night in the spring of the year, I'd go out and if I could see light in any place at all, I slept in the cellar. And there was that big storm coming me out there on that prairie. I finally made it into Quanah. It rained on me, a pouring down rain every step of the way, and I was ready to come back to Wise County. This cousin of mine, he took him on up the road a little way, and he sent him the other direction. After he had worked for about a half a day, he found wasn't was 300 miles over where he had a brother living. We all got close to Crosby or someplace, so he just walked on to his brother. He didn't come back. <laughs> When I told that old boy, I said, now listen, I could sell these things if I could find anybody to sell them to. But I said, you had me out there in the court where nobody didn't live. Oh, son said, you're going to be all right. You know what I'm going to do with you Monday? We're going to rest today is Sunday. So I'm going to take you over here to El Dorado, Oklahoma, and said there's a family living on every 160 acres over there. But that sounds like a town to me. You know, they run out there and squatted on that 160 acres a long time ago. Well, that's what it was, about two years after they'd squatted on that land. Well, everybody lived in dugouts there, too, and they didn't have enough to eat, let alone buy pictures. I tried that for three days. Got on a hill one evening. I was all worn out. I hadn't slept any night before because I went down this old dugout, and they told me where I could go to bed. They had a little old sort of a halfway house on top of the ground. Told me I'd sleep in that bed, and so, of course, I hadn't want to hit that bed last I was sound asleep. Because I pulled off down to my underwear. We didn't know what pajamas were those days. When I woke up, there's an old boy on, in, on each side of me with all his clothes on. Even his shoes. They didn't pull off his shoes, nothing. I got out of there before daylight the next morning, and I got up on this little, little hill that afternoon. I looked way down the valley, and I saw a white house. First house I'd seen. I said, boy, that's one place I'm sure going to try to stay all night. I worked all around there, and I hit that house about an hour before sundown. I drug into that place, and as I was trying to sell my wares to this old lady, she kept looking at me, and she got me all embarrassed. Every time I'd look up, she'd be looking right at me. I finally didn't know what to say. She finally said, ain't you lies of badges, boy? And when she said that, I just busted down bowling. <laughs> it happened so that this old lady and my mother were schoolgirls together, and she recognized me. Uh, she hadn't seen my mother since she was about 16 years old. Well, you know, she just took me back there in that kitchen and drew a tub of water and said, Now, you, while you get in there taking yourself a bath, I'm going to ranch out this, these clothes for you and said, Get you fixed up and I won't send you home. She kept me there all night with her, fed me. Said, Two miles over there's a railroad and there's a water tank. They stopped there for water and said, You get on that train and and go back home. I said, well, that boss of mine, he's waiting for me down at El Dorado. He told me to wait right there till I got back. 
and I'm not doing that for two days. Well, she said, well, you just make your way back home. Well, I got on that train. I got off it, Eldorado. I went up to this hotel, and I said to that old lady, I said, where is that man that come in here with me when I come over? She said, he turned right around and caught the next train back over corner, I reckon. I said, he promised me he's going to stay right here till I got back. She said, well, he didn't stay no time. Said he caught the train an hour after you left. I didn't have any money. I said, what time does the next train go over there? She said, tomorrow afternoon at this time. I said, how far is it? She said, 16 miles. Oh, I said, that's fine. I'll just walk over there. So I walked <laughs> that 15 miles. But, you know, I think way back in those days, reading I'm telling you that story that I must have had alcoholic tendencies all along, all along the line. Because, you know, I had about ten sisters, and I was the only boy at that time. Nothing come along later. About 13 in our family. And I was pretty badly spoiled. But I went right back to that farm, and I still didn't want to be a farmer. Something told me that I wanted to be a bookkeeper. And I had a sister that married a banker over here at Paris, Texas, and there's a commercial college there. And I decided that's just what I wanted to do. And my dad had different ideas about that. He said, now, that's where you want to spend your money foolishly like that. I'll pay for you going to school out here at the kid, but I ain't going to pay for nothing like that. He said, you can just raise your cotton farm down there on that 40 acres. I did. Nobody old enough to remember back in those days, because I made a little over bale of the acre of cotton and picked the biggest part of it myself, day and night. But cotton sold for three and a half cents a pound. And I finally, well, after I gave him my father half of it, I think I had $78 left. But I bought me a bicycle from Sears Roebuck. I'd always worn me one for 12 and a half. And put my little old satchel on the back of that thing. I was going to ride that bicycle to Paris, which is 125 miles away. Well, back in those days, of course, we had no roads. So I hadn't gone more than about four miles till I had 25 punctures. Grass birds would puncture that bicycle. So I put that bicycle on my back and I carried it the rest of the way. <laughs> I entered the Paris Commercial College and graduated with flying colors in six months. Staying there with my sister. Boy, did I learn how to write. So I had a chance to get me a job in this grocery store, so I went up and made an application to old man G.W. Riley. After giving him a long song and dance, he said, Son, said, what experience have you had? I said, no practical experience, but I can keep any set of books I ever saw in my life. I said, I want you to see my writing. I unwound that big diploma that I'd made there, you know, with all that flourishing stuff. You know, these teachers taught you back in the old, that Spencerian business. He said, you sure can write. I said, you're so persistent about this. I'm going to give you this job. So I worked that old boy for you day and night for 30 days. He gave me $30 a month, I remember that. And I worked day and night for 30 days, and then he kept me three more days to try to find out what I'd done to his books. And that's been 40 years ago, and he don't know yet how he come out. <laughs> well, then I decided I wasn't a bookkeeper. And I got me a job in the hotel field. And that was my vocation in life. I made up my mind that I was going to be the greatest hotel man in the world. And I possibly would have if it hadn't been for beverage alcohol. I held good jobs. I didn't drink. I worked hard at my work, my job. I built myself up very rapidly. Finally, I found that in my work, I come in contact with educated people. And I had a feeling of inadequacy to meet those people. And finally, I found, after being about 23 years old, honey, you remember the first time we ever had a drink out of Rivercrest when we had that thud and that bottle of beer? I just had married that gal, you know. We were living in the Rivercrest Country Club. I was managing that club. And boy, did they drink it out there like nobody's business. One night after it all gone, I was looking at the wreckage. I said, let's drink us a bottle of that beer. Did you ever taste any beer? She said, no. I said, I never did either. So we got us a bottle of beer, and after about two or three swallows of that, we decided that wasn't any good, so we didn't try that no more. But as I progressed in my, my work and coming in contact with people, and I never I shall forget this night 
I was working for one of the richest women in Texas, one of the Wagner, Lecter Wagner Wharton it was at that time, managing a hotel for her. I'd bought a very wonderful home in Dallas for her. She owned this park hotel, the only family hotel in Dallas. She had furnished it, and we got permission from the government to go over to Dallas and get to Fort Worth and get two truckloads of liquor that I had bought before the country went dry. She had me buy up all the liquor I could find, so I filled a basement full of it over there. Hauled it over to her place, and that was a, a drunken brawl, this home was, of the high society of Dallas, Texas. And two or three times a week, I'd have to go out to help feed those people, fix up a buffet supper or something for them. And then two or three different times, they all that bunch of drunks decided they wanted to go to the ranch, which is up near Byrne, Texas. She had a beautiful ranch out there called Zachowista. She'd call me up and say, honey, get, get a crowd, get the, a crew together, and I wonder if you get the ranch house open by daylight in the morning. Said, there's a bunch of us want to go up to the ranch. You'll get supplies go up, so I'd get some Monday and away we'd go. I remember one night about 11 o'clock, I'd been on the job about 24 hours a day for three days, and I was standing in front of the bar, all that bunch of drunk men and women, there's about seven, eight couples of them. One had drunk, get drunk and passed out, and I'd haul them off to bed and undress them, put them to bed, and by the time I'd get the rest of them all put to bed with the one first and begin to get up and start again, you know how those things go. I was standing in front of the bar, and the lecturer came up to me, and she said, I want you to take this drink out. I said, you look like you're about to fall down. I said, I don't drink, uh, Mrs. Wharton. She said, I know you don't, but said, you need this. I said, just drink it right down. So I did, you know, I threw it down. Didn't like it. I stood there for a few minutes. She went on about her entertaining. And a few minutes, I turned around to this bartender, and I said, Say, bud, what was that she gave me? She said, that was a scotch highball. I said, fix me another and just like it. She fixed me another and just like it. Well, you know, all of my country club work and my hotel work, I had been a servant to everyone that I worked for. But after taking that second drink, I ceased to be a servant any longer. I joined the party. <laughs> and you know, I've been associating with people on a little lower level of life in that high society, you know, and I had a lot of stories, and I just busted out with them, and boy, I was the life of the party. They tried to give me more, and I said, no, that's all I want. Well, I thought I'd found the answer to my bashfulness. So whenever I'd go into a party like that, I'd take my two drinks, and then I could be the kind of a person I thought I wanted to be. But there's a sad part of that, that those two drinks began to progress, as all alcoholism does, from social to pathological drinking. Finally got to the point to where it was something that I couldn't handle, but I wouldn't admit it. I kept trying. Every time I would take too much to drink, I had that deep sense of guilt of my actions. I promised myself I wouldn't do it anymore, and then I'd lay off for a long time. Then I'd try it again and again. The sad thing about the alcoholic is that after we pass that invisible line, we lose one of the greatest gifts that God gave you and I, because I lost my self-respect, I lost my fixed loyalty to my family, to my friends, and to my job. Yes, I had a terrible sense of guilt of what was happening to me. Then I began to build up alibis and excuses for my drinking that lasted much longer than it should have. And due to my capacity to misrepresent with certain skill, I won the admiration of the charter members of the biggest liars club in the nation. As this illness progressed, Ethical deterioration set in. The tour of hospitals, environmental treatments, and prayers of loved ones had worn the seat of that old water wagon slick, getting on and off. Soon the wagon was gone. I'd lost all desire to get sober. It would be needless for me to go into the heartbreak and sorrow that this care caused, the pain of hangover, the lapse of memory. Mental deterioration had set in. <coughs> On July the 4th, 1945, a crisis came into my life. 
all the accumulated experiences of my past and prayers of loved ones had come together and manifested themselves into a tremendous desire to gain my self-respect and to want to live. That is the afternoon that I call this cherished fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. And when I look back over these 11 years, it would be hard for me to tell you the fine things that's happened in my life. There's no way that I can express myself when it comes to that. I'm so deeply grateful for people like you, for this beautiful program. It has taught me how to live. It's taught me how to die. I questioned that one time because I've been saying it a long time. I had a very serious operation about five years ago. When the doctor told me he didn't think he'd bring me, pull me through, I laughed at him. I said, that's perfectly all, doctor. Are you not going to fight me the least bit? And I didn't feel the least bit afraid to die. And I don't think I feel that way tonight. I've had some sad things happen in the last two months. Two of my very fine AA friends, one of them passed away about ten days ago, Old brother Ab from from Tulsa. Many of you know him. Another one of my very close friends, Dr. George Ingram of Amarillo, is laying at the point of death tonight and cannot get well. But those things I'm taught how to accept. In our little AA prayer, God grant me the serenity to accept these things I cannot change. That's something that I can't change. The 24-hour program is a great way to live. I'm going to tell you how I live my 24-hour program. Maybe you can't do it that way. But it's the way that I stay sober. And what I say tonight, I want you to take those things that I say that you like and those that you don't like, please forget about them. When they told me 24 hours at a time, I didn't realize what that meant, and I didn't for a long time after I came into AA. How important it is for us to live just today. So foolish for us to worry over the yesterdays, they're gone. Why do we get all confused over what might happen tomorrow? Because your life and my life is a book of volumes three. The past, the present, and the yet to be. The past is done and laid away. The present is living from day to day. The third and last of volume three, which is our tomorrow, is hidden from our sight, and only God holds the key. If we can just remember that and not try to carry that heavy load of yesterday and tomorrow, just today. <coughs> How important it is. How important it is to me as an individual to get up in the morning and to walk to my mirror and say, Good morning, God, this is another day. It's a brand new day from your hand. I'm not going to ask you to do anything for me today I can do myself, but I know there's going to be many things come up this day where I'm going to need your help and guidance. And God, don't forget to send someone to me today that's suffering like I was, give me the words of encouragement that I might show that person the happy life that you have shown me. That's my morning contract every morning. And then when I go to bed at night, I read myself to sleep. I may be so sleepy that I don't know what I'm reading. But the moment that night lamp, I go into darkness, and I pull off my night lamp... There is my tenth step in Alcoholics Anonymous. Continue to take an inventory of yourself and when wrong, promptly admit it. So I lay there quietly and reconstruct my whole day, picking out the mistakes that I've made, try to make amends to those that I've harmed that day. And then when I'm over with that inventory, you'd be surprised, I'll alert your mind will become through constant practice, picking those things out. After that's all over with, and I'm thankful to God for carrying me through the day, and I can go to sleep. That, ladies and gentlemen, is my AA.
every day. And then, of course, during the day, I have something that sustains me, and that's 11th step in Alcoholics Anonymous, where I can seek through prayer and meditation to improve my conscious contact with God as I understand Him, praying only for the knowledge of His will and the power to carry that out. That's something that will line out all those little wrinkles. Sometimes I let myself get a little confused before I recognize it. The moment I do, then I can stop and repeat that that eleventh step, thinking about what I'm saying. In other words, I'm turning it over to God and let Him handle it. It's more than I can handle myself. The remarkable part about my AA life is coming in as an agnostic not believing in God and laughing at those for two and a half months that talked about God I was going to handle this thing on my first step and my last step part of the last step I didn't get drunk but I wasn't happy I'm taking up entirely too much time here tonight I've got two little things that I'm going to close with I don't know where I found this. Someone's always handing something to me, but it's so true to our life. Not what you own, but what you give. Not what you learn, but how you live. Not how you talk, but how you do. Makes up the person known as you. How true that is. That's just as true as it can be. taxi cab driver in St. Louis during the national convention was driving a friend of mine from San Antonio myself out to the club to see the club he had never been out there and I had and we just took off from the convention one afternoon and got a cab we talked to A all the way out there we kept the cab was in that part for 30 minutes went back and got into the cab and he handed me a a program that they used, that folding program, similar to one we had in Dallas this last time. He said, gentlemen, you know, I couldn't help him hear you talk on the way out. He said, I'm a Christian man. He said, I write a little poetry. He said, it occurred to me that this might be helpful to you. Use it if you want. That old boy, was name was Bob Madden, and his cab number is 202, St. Louis Presumer, Missouri. He said, I wish I had a telescope to scan the starry skies. But since I have no telescope, thank God for two good eyes. I wish I had a house run by push-button commands. But while that house is still a dream, thank God for two good hands. I wish I had a supercar to give my friends a treat. But till that car comes along, Thank Almighty God for two good feet. I have two good eyes to look to God above, two hands to clasp in prayer, two feet to take me to AA. Thank God I'm a millionaire. How true that is in our in our AA life. How very true it is. And we get our real happiness in the AA program by giving of ourselves to our fellow man expecting nothing in return. Sometimes I'm a little disturbed over the willingness to do 12-step work which is so important in this program. So very important. You look at the real happy person in A, man or woman. That man or woman is the one that's continually giving of themselves. So let's not forget that someone helped each and every one of us in this room to find the A program. I owe my whole life to my good sponsors that continued to hold on to try to teach me how the importance of my second and third step after I took that step humbly and sincerely. I found that I had a hold of something that I'd been looking for all of my drinking life. 
and that I'm still holding on to. I see old Watt over there, and I'm nodding his head. I know what he wants me to do, and I'm going to do that, and I'm going to close. The story of the happy prince. Everywhere he went, <coughs> people showered him with love and praise and adulation. A man saw this and said, I'd like to be like that person, but he's a handsome lad. And I couldn't be like he. But I would like to have the love and praise of the throng. So he went out and had an exact replica made of the shining countenance of the happy prince. And fastened it to his face and he looked exactly like the happy prince. So he went about. But he did not receive the attention of the people. So he said to himself, that prince is doing something that I haven't discovered. I shall spy on him. So he went around spying on the happy prince. And he found that the happy prince was always doing the goodly deed, the kindly deed, helping the downtrodden, bringing joy where there was sorrow to people. So he said, if that's what he's doing, to receive love and praise, that I'll do. So he started out to doing the goodly deeds, the kindly deeds, and in time, great throngs gathered around him. One day his conscience smote him. He said, here I am, doing all these things to receive love and praise, representing myself as a happy prince, and that isn't right. So he reached up to pull off his mask. It wouldn't come off, because he was the happy prince. Happy prince and princesses to each and every one of you. I'm very grateful that you invited me down here tonight. And I'm so very anxious to sit right down over there and listen to my good old friend, Horace Ford, a man that I've said many, many times early in my A and still say it if I could just do A like he does. I'm perfectly satisfied. Thank you very much. Thank you, Al. Before I introduce the next speaker listed on the program, we have a very good friend from Shreveport here tonight, Judge Randall Whitmire. I wonder if you would come up and say a few words. This is indeed a pleasant surprise. I hope while I stand here that God in some way will tell me just what I should say to you, or I did not expect to speak. I'm not an alcoholic. I have been honored by having been placed on the Board of Trustees of the Highland Group in Shreveport. I've endeavored sincerely and honestly to work with all groups in Shreveport in my capacity as city judge. I recognize the fact that alcoholism is a, is a terrible disease. I have learned that it is the third highest killer in the nation. And since I'm holding a public office where three-fourths of the offenses that occur within my jurisdiction are directly or indirectly connected with the use of alcohol, I think it behooves me as a alleged Christian to do something towards helping those drunks. Drunks who come to me many times and say, Judge, I plead guilty with a statement. Just the other day one said that. I said, what is it you want to say? He said, well, Judge, it's just like this. If you have mercy and suspend that $10 fine, I'll give you a two-year float. <laughs> 
Well, I had never heard such a word in connection with a drunk. I says, what in the world is a two-year float? Well, he was a showman, this nigger, and he turned back to the audience where there was about a hundred people, and he then looked at me with all of the surprise and that I should be so stupid, and says, Judge, you mean you don't know what a two-year float is? I said, I sure don't. You tell me. He said, very calmly and very directly, he said, Judge, it just simply means this, that you and I are going in opposite directions for two years. <laughs> Today I had before me a man who is a habitual drunkard, been rest, arrested and convicted of drunk and vagrancy not less than 60 or 70 times, to my knowledge. He stood before me, shaking as if he might have the DTs. He was as sick as any man could possibly be, mentally and physically. And he was charged with two charges of drunk, one on the 25th of last month and one on the 29th of last month, and then additional charge of vagrancy. There was a man that we couldn't do anything with except to put in jail. And the jail is full of wineheads, perverts, thieves, and it's no place for a diseased person. What are we going to do about it? I've said many times to the various members of our AA and Shreveport, I wish there was something I could do other than say, when they plead guilty, $10. Which means pay $10 or serve 10 days in jail. Perhaps someday, when God through his Son, Jesus Christ, enters my heart more sincerely than it is at the present time. I'll learn some answer to, to some way to solve that problem. Since I've been judged, beginning with January 1955, I have constantly had the benefit of the advice and counsel and assistance of members of AA. Each uh, morning of court, on with exception of rare occasions, as a member or members of AA, sitting on my right or left while I'm sitting on the bench, so that they may better observe, better screen, each and every one of these drunks, and many times there are as many as 30 or 40 before me. I've had occasion where we have thought we have saved some people. And that has given us a great deal of pleasure and a great deal of, of, of pride. Myself, I feel like that although I'm not an alcoholic, and I do not drink very often, nevertheless, the 12 suggested steps are so, so firmly fixed in my mind that not long ago somebody said in Sunday school something about the number of commandments and I spoke up right quick and said 12. <laughs> and it's nothing in the world but the influence of AA. <laughs> now I like what something, I like something especially that the pre, uh, previous speaker said about doing something. Do you know every one of the Ten Commandments either say do something or don't do something with the exception of the Tenth one? And it was only when Jesus Christ came on this earth that he clarified to the extent of always making it so simple in explaining those commandments. For instance, the Tenth Commandment says do not covet this and that. Where some of the others say on our our father and so on, our parents and do not commit adultery and so forth. Jesus explained that the fifth commandment, for instance, I shall not commit adultery, may mean something more than that. He explained that just the very look of lust that you may have upon your face made you likewise guilty of that commandment. He explained that the tenth commandment, which 
Only you can know. No one else can know. Only you can know whether you covet something. We can know whether you do or don't in accordance with those other commandments. And so it's essential that if you believe and have faith in God, it's essential that He express Himself through your heart. I believe the 12 suggested steps is, is, is very aptly put in three words. Confession. Concentration and consecration. The three C's. That's what is essential for an AA and all others who are non-AA members if they want to live a happy, peaceful, and contented life. I want to thank the mistress of ceremony for this opportunity to speak to you. It's been a genuine pleasure. And I want to say this, that Watt, who brought me over here today, well, that's not correct. Duke brought me over here. We brought Watt. Uh, uh, at any rate, Duke, to me, is one of the finest people I've ever known. Watt, Lucille, and every other member of AA, to me, represents the highest type of Christian or whatever they may believe in that you can find anywhere. Barn or not even excluding churches, but including them. Because just stop and think of what of that past that they have forgotten and that present how they are trying to live a good Christian life. 